Well, tonight, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Judges. Tonight, we're going to study Judges chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. Anybody need a Bible? Well, Judges chapter 9 is where we'll start tonight. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths it contains. Lord, may we hear clearly tonight what your spirit would want to say to us. Apply your word to our hearts, Lord. Stretch our faith. Help us grow. Lord, we want to be used by you in ever greater ways in our lives. And so speak to us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not how a man starts that matters, but it's how he finishes. This was true of Israel's fifth judge, Gideon. When God called Gideon, he referred to him as a mighty man of valor. Though he started out fearful and apprehensive, Gideon took the steps of obedience God required. He trusted God in the face of opposition. When God reduced Gideon's ranks and still promised him victory over the mighty Midianites, he didn't flinch. Rather, he obeyed, and God won a colossal victory with just 300 troops. Imagine, against 450 to 1 odds, Gideon overcame the 135,000 Midianites in the Valley of Jezreel. It was obvious that God was working a miracle. Yet rather than worship God as king, Israel offered the throne to Gideon and his sons. Gideon, though, refused. Gideon's time in the limelight didn't cause him to forget the lights that won the battle over Midian. Recall the torches that came through the broken vessels. God worked through brokenness. Why in the world should Gideon be exalted? And so he turned down the crown. But that didn't stop him from taking the jewels. Though Gideon dared not form a kingdom, he still enjoyed living like a king. He took great spoils of war. And he made himself an expensive ephod. He built a huge harem. He sired 70 sons, no less. He named one Abimelech, which means my father is king. And this man, Abimelech, followed in his father's footsteps. Sadly, not Gideon's earlier example of humility and faith and obedience and brokenness, but his latter example of extravagance, luxury, and ambition. Well, in Judges 9, Gideon is dead, and Abimelech desires the power and prestige his father enjoyed, but he tries to secure it by taking the throne and making himself king. Verse 1, then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, or Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Now Gideon, or Jerubbaal as he was also called, had 70 sons born by his wives. They all lived in Ophrah. Yet chapter 8, verse 31 tells us that his concubine was in Shechem. She also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Gideon had kept a concubine, a girl on the side. On business trips to Shechem, she kept him company. But you see, girls on the side seldom stay there. 
They have a way of demanding center stage. And this was the case with the concubine's son, Abimelech. He goes to the men of Shechem, and he recruits their support. Do they want to be governed by Gideon's sons living in Ophrah or by a homeboy from Shechem? And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Berith. Notice the men of Shechem had fallen into idolatry. They were worshiping Baal. In fact, they make a campaign contribution to Abimelech from the coffers of this idol. And the fact that he accepts reveals Abimelech's unprincipled character. How can your heart be in tune with God if you're accepting donations from the devil? Look at what Abimelech does with the money. With it, Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men and they followed him. He hires thugs to do his dirty work. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbel, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbel, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, And they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Despite his gruesome, bloody tactics, the men of Shechem still made Abimelech their king. He was their brother. He would be their king. Verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, that is Gideon's youngest son, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. And he lifted up his voice and cried out. Now, you've got to understand the topography. Mount Gerizim overlooked the town of Shechem and apparently Abimelech's coronation ceremony. All of a sudden, Jotham appears and he said to them, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Jotham challenges both Abimelech and the Shechemites with a parable. It's interesting. This is the first of the Bible's parables. It begins... The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? In other words, fruitfulness to God was a much higher calling than holding sway over men. Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees? All three trees were bearing fruit, pleasing to God. And they didn't have time to step down from that high calling and govern over trees or men. The implication is, is that wise and godly men in Israel knew that God alone should be the king over Israel. Only a sinister, selfish bramble bush would try to replace God. See, a bramble bush bears no fruit. It's worthless. Its only ambition is to rule over trees. A bramble only grows up to overshadow or choke out good trees. Well, then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter 
in my shade, but if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Not only was the bramble barren of fruit, in the summer it was dry and flammable. It could easily catch fire and burn up the countryside. Jotham is predicting that this power play by Abimelech and the Shechemites are going to backfire. They're both going to end up getting burned. Abimelech was nothing but a bramble. He was bearing no fruit to God. Nevertheless, he wanted to rule over men. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbel and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. Obviously, they had not acted in truth and in sincerity. Rather than bless, they had butchered Gideon's family. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jothan ran away and fled. And he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. It was a warning and run. Well, verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, that's about as long as the honeymoon lasted, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers." In other words, both parties are about to get burned. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told Abimelech. You see, any interruption in trade in those days created a crisis of confidence for the person in charge. Thus, the men of Shechem here are undermining Abimelech's rule. Thus, a rival arose. Now, Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. They all got drunk and started bad-mouthing and bashing Abimelech. Then Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Gaul had the gall. He was arrogant. He challenges Abimelech's authority. Who needs him? Gaul should be your leader. Verse 29. If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Oh, it's amazing how brave a guy can get after a bottle of wine or a few beers. Gaul calls out Abimelech. He challenges him to a rumble. It's time to duke it out. 
When Zubal, the ruler of the city, who was still loyal to Abimelech, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. The Zebul has a suggestion for his friend. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Take note, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem. And here they are fortifying the city against you. Now therefore get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. In other words, your imagination is running wild. All you're seeing is shadows. So Gaul spoke again and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul said to him, where indeed is your mouth now? with which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Okay, big mouth, where's your boast now? You wanted to fight Abimelech? Well, here's your chance. Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So God went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaul and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. Abimelech is going to attack Shechem now three times. In the first attack, he drives out Gaul and his family. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. And he looked and there were the people coming out of the city and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sold it with, sowed it with salt. In his second assault on Shechem, Abimelech slaughters the people of the city. He even sows it with salt, a gesture of disdain and judgment. Ground sowed with salt became worthless. Well, verse 46. Now, when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bereth. These last few survivors of Shechem, they flee to the tower that was dedicated to the idol Baal Bereth. And it was told to Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went to Mount Zalman. He and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bow that is a limb from the trees and he took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what have you seen me do? Make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own limb and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them. They started a bonfire with all these branches. So that all the people of the tower of Shechem died 
about a thousand men and women. They were cremated alive. See, Jotham had warned the Shechemites that if they followed Abimelech, they would get burned. And that is exactly what happened. The tower became a crematorium. But what about God's judgment on Abimelech? Well, read verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. His strategy here is the same as it was at the Tower of Shechem. He wants to torch the tower. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head. An upper millstone was smaller than the lower millstone. It was still, though, two foot in diameter and a foot thick. Imagine somebody dropping a small tombstone on your head from a window 30 feet overhead. As the Bible says, it crushed his skull. I'll bet it did. It's fitting. Abimelech wanted to be king, and here a king gets crowned. Not even an Excedrin PM could have helped this headache. Abimelech died from a big head in more ways than one. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed him. Shows how concerned Abimelech was with his image to the very end. So his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Zerubbabel. If God calls you to leadership, great. But the ambition of a God-led leader is to serve, not rule. Only a bramble seeks to rule. Chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years. And he died and was buried in Shamir. Tola was the son of Dodo, which is probably a claim my three sons could make. Actually, the name Tola means worm. He may have been sort of a wormy, inferior type person, but God is into using worms and Dodos to accomplish his purposes. We should be glad. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns. And guess what jersey he wore on his high school football uniform? He was a fullback. It was number 45, I think. Well, I bet you thought 30. Who knows? Jair's 30 towns, though, were called Hevoth Jair, which means towns of Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cayman. Tola and Jair judged Israel for a combined 45 years. Verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Sadly, this phrase, did evil in the sight of the Lord, gets repeated seven times in the book of Judges. We're told in Israel served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were the chief cities of Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were a seafaring people who settled along the coast, but these were all pagan people. Israel adopted their gods. Israel also served the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They refused to serve Yahweh, the true God. It sounds like the children of Israel served everything and everyone but the one true God. And of course, that's no surprise. You know, it's been said, once a person rejects the truth, there's no end to the foolishness they'll believe. Honest scientists today have poked all kinds of holes in the theory of evolution. It is seriously flawed. Life requires a life giver. But rather than consider the God of the Bible, people today are more inclined to chalk up creation to aliens from another planet, some other kind of nonsense. They'd rather believe in science fiction than in the verifiable claims of Scripture. Well, Israel worshiped every God but the one true God. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. God gets upset over these matters. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. That is east of the Jordan. But their oppression also spread to the West Bank. We're told in chapter 10, verse 9. For moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? And from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and Amalekites and Maonites oppressed you, but you cried out to me and I delivered you from their land, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God was so frustrated with Israel's ingratitude. He's saying, every time I drive out your enemies, you thank me by serving other gods. What thanks is that? Let them deliver you now. And I wonder how this applies to us. Have we ever cried out to God? Watched God come to our rescue? And then we thanked him by praising him for one night before we brushed him off for the next three months until the next crisis came? Is God saying to us tonight, cry out to your bank account? Hey, put your trust in your job that you serve and worship or that crowd that you party with on the weekends. Let them help you in your time of distress. Well, in verse 15, Israel shows real repentance. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. Now, here's a sign of true repentance. They not only turn from their sin, but they accept its consequences. Do to us what seems best to us. 
So many people want to repent of their sin. They don't want to feel the consequences of their sin. They want to be delivered, not just from sin, but from its consequences. Not so with these people. In other words, they say, if we need to be punished, punish us. Discipline us, Lord, if necessary. But just don't let us die outside of your blessing. Please deliver us, we pray. It was a sign of true repentance. And I love God's response. Verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. This is so much like our merciful God. Yes, Israel had frustrated and betrayed the Lord. But he was too merciful to let their sin quench his love. When I recall the times I've taken God's grace for granted, it breaks my heart. And it scares me spitless. But I can be sure the pain I've caused hasn't stopped God from loving me. His soul can't endure our misery. Now remember the cycle that gets repeated throughout the book of Judges. Here's how it goes. Israel sins and worships idols. A nation then comes and conquers them and makes them slaves. They cry out to God in supplication, asking for his help. God raises up a savior that is a judge to deliver them. Then he empowers the judge with his spirit, and he overthrows the enemy. Finally, the victory is followed by a period of serenity and peace, only to be interrupted by another round of sin, servitude, supplication, savior, spirit, and then serenity again. And this cycle gets repeated seven times in the book of Judges. But the question arises, how many times has this cycle been repeated in your life? What was cyclical for Israel is a pattern for people today. I know folks who are always either getting in trouble or getting out of trouble. Hey, if we stay focused on Jesus, we'll know consistent victory, not the ups and downs that plagued Israel. Well, another round of sin and enslavement starts in verse 17. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Chapter 11 answers their question. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. But he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Jephthah was a man of outstanding qualities. But his character was overshadowed by his parentage. He was an illegitimate child. He was the son of a harlot. And his half-brothers wouldn't let, him, wouldn't let him forget it. They were the legitimate heirs in the family, not Jephthah. But you know, with God, there are no illegitimate or accidental children. God is the giver of all life, and every human is valued by God. It's tragic that any person would be judged by the, by the circumstances of their birth or by the mistakes of their parents. Issues they can't control. Remember Dr. King's famous statement, judge a man not by the color of his skin, 
but by the content of his character. We should expand that to include the legitimacy of his birth. Today, you hear businesses brag about being equal opportunity employers, but the only person void of bigotry and prejudice is God. If you're born again, God looks past the birth certificate. He is the one true equal opportunity employer. And here God recruits a man everyone else rejected. His name was Jephthah. Verse 3, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Jephthah failed to find acceptance among God's people, so he went out and found it among worthless men. Could it be that the bars and brothels here in metro Atlanta are filled tonight with people who, just like Jephthah, have sought to find acceptance and love among God's people but were rejected? And it's the need for friendship that's driven them out to hang with worthless people. Hey, always remember, the church isn't a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Our Lord Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. The despised and rejected flocked to Jesus. He embodied God's love. This should be true of us. Verse 4, it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Jephthah had been shunned until he was needed. But now a fierce battle is ahead. It requires a man of courage and skill and daring All of a sudden, Jephthah's pedigree doesn't matter as much as the strength of his character and his steely nerves. They summoned Jephthah to lead them into battle. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. There's no such thing as pedigree or color among people in the same foxhole. In a battle or facing a disaster, folks put aside their pettiness and they pull together. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, Shall I be your head? In other words, when the battle's over, will you still want me to be your leader? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me in my land? Now at first, Jephthah tries to use diplomacy to avoid bloodshed. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok into the Jordan, Now, therefore, restored those lands peaceably. 
And from verses 14 to 23, Jephthah rebukes the king's claim with a history lesson. He recounts the nation Israel's victory over the Amorites. You see, their land acquisition didn't come at the expense of Ammon. It was the spoils of battle. They had won it fair and square. It was the land God had enabled them to conquer. In verse 24, Jephthah appeals to logic. He asked the king of Ammon, Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, Yahweh, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. Now, Chemosh was the God of the Ammonites, a false god. But to prove his point, Jephthah asked the Ammonite king if his God gave him a victory, wasn't it his right to take the spoils? Likewise, if the God of Israel gives a victory, shouldn't the winner take possession of the land? Follow that same logic today. And Israel should occupy Sinai, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, to Damascus, even southern Lebanon. For these are all lands that God has given the Israelites in their battles. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zeppor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon in its villages, in Aror in its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? The Ammonite king laid claim to the land that Israel had occupied now for three centuries. If, if they really thought it was theirs, why hadn't they made an issue of it before now? Well, verse 27, Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Jephthah's diplomatic effort had failed. Now battle is on the horizon. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. Jephthah is now full of the Holy Spirit. He's ready to fight battles for God, to do his mighty works, to be a strategic force for God's kingdom. But sadly, spiritual anointing and power doesn't make us immune to sin. And it doesn't necessarily make us immune to rash decisions. You know, we see in the scriptures that the power of the Holy Spirit didn't stop Samson from lusting after women. It didn't stop Paul and Barnabas from arguing and splitting up over a dispute. It didn't stop the church in Corinth from their petty divisions and carnality. And it doesn't stop Jephthah from making a rash and foolish vow. The baptism of the Holy Spirit provides us power, but it's not an instant ticket to holiness. Godly living and moral purity is the work of God's Spirit but it also involves our submission to God's will and the renewing of our mind with God's word and the cultivation and maintenance of a repentant attitude. Well, in verse 30, Jephthah prays a prayer he should have never prayed. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. You know, Jephthah's making the same mistake some Christians make today. 
I call it a works trip. God, I'll do this. God, I'll sacrifice that if you'll come through for me. God, if you bless me with this sale or if you help me win this game, I'll return the favor by offering something back to you. I'll scratch your back, God, if you scratch mine. People love to play tit for tat with God, but it's not biblical and it's not wise. Remember, all God's gifts are gifts of grace. They come to us not because we deserve them, but because God loves giving them. God wants us to believe him, not barter with him. So look at what happens. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. I believe God would have given Israel the victory over Ammon without Jephthah's rash vow. God loves us. He wants to bless his children. But Jephthah made his vow, and a good Hebrew keeps his vow. Verse 34 is a tough pill to swallow. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter. Daddy's little princess, his only daughter, his only child, was so happy to see him, she came bounding out of the house to greet him to celebrate his victory with him. She came out of the house with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her ah, that he tore his clothes. He made a vow that he couldn't break. He had promised God the first object that came running from the doors of his house, and I'm sure he was thinking a lamb or perhaps a goat, but not his princess. And Jephthah said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back. So she said to him, and you've got to marvel at her attitude, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Now, some folks suggest that Jephthah offered his daughter as a literal burnt offering. But we know from his message to the king of Ammon that Jephthah was familiar with the law of Moses. And the law of Moses strictly forbid human sacrifice. What's more likely is that he, in giving his daughter as an offering to God, turned her over to serve in the tabernacle. She would remain a virgin and serve only the Lord for the rest of her life. This is why the sorrow she expresses in verses 38 and 39 concern her perpetual celibacy, not her loss of life. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and be well my virginity, my friends and I. In other words, give me some time, daddy, to, to mourn to give up all my little girl dreams of marriage and family and accept God's will. And so he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow 
with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. It was as if she'd entered the convent. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four, day, four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. In chapter 12, a civil war erupts between the tribes of Gad and Ephraim. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Oh, my. These Ephraimites were at it again. You remember back in Judges chapter 8, verse 1, they made the same complaint to Gideon. These people were always brave after the battle. Jephthah lived in Gad or Gilead, east of the Jordan River. And he led the Gadites against Ammon. The tribe of Ephraim lived on the west bank. But they're now angry. They were left out of the conflict. They wanted in on the action. And Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. In other words, Jephthah had asked for their help, but they hadn't responded. The Ephraimites remind me of a lot of church members who love to show up after the job is done. And then they pout. Why didn't you call me? How come I never get to serve around here? Hey, a loving heart anticipates needs. An eager servant hears of opportunities and jumps into the action. I think the church today is plagued with Ephraimites, people who want to criticize after the fact. Hey, don't be an armchair quarterback. Don't be a Monday morning coach. Be a Gileadite. Know the needs. Take the initiative. Don't wait to be asked. And so when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. When you didn't come to my help, Jephthah says, we did it ourselves, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Why is it that some people would rather fight against the church than with the church? Now, Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead, and he fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. Because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. Now this battle went down east of the Jordan. So the whipped Ephraimites, they fled west back over the river. But you see, the Gadites had taken control of the crossings. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over... The men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. The word Shibboleth meant flowing stream. We're told, and he, that is the disguised Ephraimite who was fleeing the battle, he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. In other words, the native Ephraimites couldn't say the shush sound. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. You see, the Ephraimites had a hard time pronunciating certain Hebrew words. Now, all the tribes of Israel spoke Hebrew, but the tribes east of the Jordan and the tribes west of the Jordan developed different ways to pronounce certain words. It's like Southerners and Northerners today. We say roof. 
They say roof. We say creek. They say crick. It's the difference in articulation that reveals your identity. It's interesting that the word shibboleth is also in, in our English dictionary. I looked it up. It's defined as a test for determining if you belong. As a test for determining if you belong. It's sad that certain shibboleths have now grown up in the church. Oh, she doesn't dress the way we like. Oh, he doesn't listen to our type of music. Oh, they don't live in the right neighborhood, and on and on it goes. It grieves God's heart when cliques form in the church, and they use shibboleths or other biases to determine who's in and who's out. The human body is a blend of unity and diversity, and so is the body of Christ. Let's not resent our differences. Let's not even tolerate them. Rather, let's celebrate them. Our diversity adds to our strength. Rather than develop little shibboleths to keep people out, let's look for new ways to include people. And by all means, let's focus on the commonality that transcends all our differences, which is our Lord Jesus. Well, verse 7 tells us, And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in among the cities of Gilead. In the last eight verses of chapter 12, we're told of three more judges. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. And during his football playing days in high school, he was a fullback. And guess the jersey number he wore? 30, of course. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. And there we have Judges chapters 9 through 12.